Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca Gagan, and this is Waving Not Drowning, a UVic Bounce podcast. Today's episode is being recorded on the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Wasanich and Lekwungen peoples. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to season two of Waving Not Drowning. I'm your host, Rebecca Gagan. And today I have the pleasure of sharing with you a conversation with another member of the UVic Bounce team. Delisha Jacobs is our wonderful research assistant and she brings her innovative spirit, passionate advocacy and focused commitment to everything that she does here at UVic Bounce. Delisha has held positions at the Society for Students with a Disability the SSD, where during her time as chairperson, she was fundamental in starting peer support groups that increased student support by over 150% compared to previous years at the SSD. Delisha has also served on the University of Victoria's Student Society's Board of Directors, where she advocated for students at the highest levels of student government. She continues to advocate for students sitting on many committees at UVic and working as a tutor in the Learning Assistance Program at the Center for Accessible Learning. After completing a Bachelor of Arts degree in English, Delisha began her graduate work in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Victoria. As a neurodiverse and disabled person herself, Delisha's research focuses on how art can be a vehicle of exploration and support for neurodiverse and disabled students, fostering positive disability identities. Delisha uses arts-based research, ABR, and artistic inquiry practices to challenge dominant discourses in education while highlighting the importance of representation and inclusion of neurodiverse and disabled people as leaders of research about themselves and their communities. In our conversation, Delisha shares her experience as a neurodiverse and disabled person navigating post-secondary. We've titled this episode, Unmasking Neurodiversity and Disability Within Academia, because we wanted to signal that in this conversation, Delisha shares her own lived experience, um, her own authentic story, of experiencing academia as someone who is um, neurodiverse and disabled. We talk about so many aspects of accessibility, disability, and neurodiversity in this episode. And I think that you'll sense, well, you'll hear the sort of urgency in our voices as we talk about the ways in which the system needs to change, um, what we need to do to teach with love, and finally, the power of radical self-love as a way of fostering a positive disability identity. I'm Rebecca Gagan, here today with Delisha Jacobs, and this is Waving, Not Drowning. Hi, Delisha, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. 
Oh, it is really such a pleasure, uh, Delisha. Thank you for making time for this conversation today. I know that you are um, very busy, that you graduated last spring, uh, but now you are back in school again. So do you want to share a little bit about what's been happening since you graduated? Yeah, absolutely. So I graduated last spring with an undergraduate in English. And I'm now doing my master's degree in education with a focus on art education. And my arts-based research focus, focuses on the study of artistic processes and inquiry from a neurodiverse and disabled artist perspective. And in turn, my goal is to incorporate this arts-based research into the study of education and new, generate new pedagogical ways of thinking, knowing, doing, to further new ways of thinking and learning, to combat colonization, ableism, racism, like all of those things. And I, I wanna bring that intersectional lens into the classroom and uh, the world at large. Wow, Delisha, I, um, as you know, I am learning so much from you and I cannot even fathom the difference that this research is going to make and the difference that you are going to make as an educator. Um, so is this a master's, Delisha? It's a couple of years, is that right? Yeah, so I'm fully like a, a year in. Um, and so I have one more like summer intensive coming up. Right. Which it does feel intense. Like when they said summer intensive, I was like, oh, it's gonna be fun. We have some <laughs> studio time, <laughs> like all this stuff. and. It is a summer intensive. Like it was like emphasis on the intensive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that word needs to be like bolded and underlined. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's been it's been really amazing. And I've I've learned so many new ways of articulating things. I think that's what's kind of been most exciting is I have these thoughts, but I didn't always know how to get them out or express them. I'm gonna use air quotes like academically. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like this has been really a good learning experience for me to like figure out how I can challenge those dominant discourses in education and like highlight the importance of re representation while actually still like using academic language that can be published and people can use it. And I think that's really important, but I am still focusing on making it accessible because that is also really important to me. Well, you know that I'm so anxious to get you out there as a teacher. It can't happen fast enough as far as I'm concerned because uh, our education system so desperately needs voices like yours. I'm so grateful that you are here today to share some of your experience of being uh, a neurodiverse student uh, at uh, post-secondary and um, as I know you're going to talk about today, um, just some of the challenges that you experienced um, as you were on your journey through your English degree. Yeah, I don't know that much about your 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 whole story, Delicia. So I'm hoping that you'll be willing to share some of that with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Did you start at UVic? I did, yeah. So in my my first semester uh, at UVic was very difficult. I'm not gonna lie, and I had always thought I was someone who, you know, 
school came easy and I would just get an A and it would it would be easy and I could I could do that but getting to UVic it was a, a rude awakening <laughs> I was like this is yeah. this is not how it's gonna be um so, so that was definitely a little a little jarring for me and I, I think that a lot of students kind of experience that that transition from high school to university or even just college to a university in Victoria, I'm thinking of like Camosun to UVic, um, that can be really difficult and we're not very well prepared for it in many cases. And I definitely was someone who wasn't. Um, And then in my second semester of my first year, I was in a car accident Um, and it was pretty bad. And I got a really severe concussion. Uh, And at that point, you know, I'm, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. I was no, no longer able to compensate and mask for the way that my brain is maybe a little bit different. Yeah. Um, so I, I struggled, I struggled a lot and I didn't know why at this point, at this point, it was just, just struggle, <laughs> just like, just constant Delisha, I'm so sorry to hear about this um, really horrible car accident and just the ways in which that impacted you. And one of the things you've just shared is that it meant that because you um, were, were really trying to heal and cope with this injury, you couldn't mask um, in the ways that you probably have been doing, I'm assuming for for years and years as a student, um, that you just couldn't uh, compensate in the same ways. And so you've said that you then really started to struggle. Can you say a bit more about what was happening for you then? Yeah, so I not being able to mask, like first I feel like I should say like masking is kind of like that hiding that authentic self like your inner self and then it's all in an effort to be socially accepted or socially um I'm gonna say like norm like normal um and I like I hate that word yeah it's masking in order to somehow satisfy or comfort or um meet the expectations of maybe we would say like the neurotypical or non-disabled um, community. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it's basically just like, you know, hiding your authentic self to yeah. be socially acceptable in, in yeah. a predominantly neurotypical society. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like shrink, shrinking yourself to fit in. And I feel like that's what I was doing a lot. So do you think you've done that for most of your life as a student? Yeah. Yeah. Like so now that I know that I, I am neurodiverse and I, I have um, experienced all of these things throughout my life that I didn't even realize. And even my anxiety. So um, something Dr. Devin Price explains is that you can have those comorbidities uh, with something like autism and I am autistic. So you can have like, it is very common to have like eating disorders, substance abuse, self-harm, like all of these things. And those actually become coping mechanisms for a lot of people as they mask which they're like true existence in the world right so that they can fit into this neurotypical environment and expectations um so yeah the cost of masking for me was like depression and anxiety and just like this sense of self that was so disconnected like I just 
like it's almost like you're grieving yourself at the same time as like not really knowing who you are so it's, it, it can be really confusing um and I was no longer able to mask so I couldn't I couldn't really I don't want to say fit in but I didn't know I didn't know who I was at this point um you know, and, and still trying to navigate school and all the stressors of academia was virtually impossible. Like it was just, that was my struggle, you know, not knowing who I was yet on top of just uh, the stressors of school. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I can't, I honestly, I can't even imagine how, you know, in the wake of a car accident, um, even, that alone, you know, like trying to heal from that and recover from that, uh, needs its own set of accommodations and supports in order to, uh, I mean, it's, as you said, you had a severe concussion. Um, and so it sounds to me, Delisha, like you at that moment were having this kind of, um, a realization isn't the right word. It's, it's a, it's a kind of um, profound moment of unsettling where you're realizing, oh, like, who am I? And how can I exist in this world in a way in which I can be myself, whoever that is? Because it sounds like you didn't even know at that point because you'd been masking, you'd been, you had been really, it's, it's uh, let's face it, like forced to mask, right? Um, for all those years. Yeah, exactly. You, you nailed it. I, um, and like being neurodiverse and disabled and attending university is hard. Like it is very hard. And then when you don't even know, I feel like it adds another layer because you don't even know that you can ask for help that, you know, there, there are, you don't know what you can even ask for. Um, so I think that there's that happening. But then like, that's not to say that once you know, it gets easier because like, there's no, there's no one arguing that it's hard, but then when professors don't acknowledge an accommodation or, you know, it's, it's huge. And that does feel like argument, right? There are people actively being unsupportive or not acknowledging and accepting the diverse needs within our educational systems. And, and yeah, that feels like being argued with and it's not respectful and it's not uncommon for, you know, students and professors to just not understand how actually hard that it is. And it, it's not a like, woe is me thing. For for me right now in this moment, it, it's a plea for professors and even students who may not have this lived experience to educate themselves, like regarding disability, neurodiversity and ableism, like it is time for neurotypical society to lose the ableist assumptions and expectations and just listen, acknowledge and respect neurodiverse and disabled people and their needs. Um, and I think then we have a whole other conversation about how hard it is to ask for help, how, how when you ask, and especially as a neurodiverse or disabled person, I feel like there's this stigma stigma to even, as you say, to even ask for help, right? That it's, it's that you, and I appreciate what you're saying so much, Alicia, about, you know, once um, you have, you know, a particular, a diagnosis or you're identified as autistic, um, it doesn't mean that it gets easier, 
right? So it can be obviously having that information, it can can help in many ways, as you've explained in your case, that you you didn't realize why some aspects of your life were so challenging, right? Or so difficult, like particularly with, with school, right? So um, having, you know, a diagnosis can help, but what you're sharing is that it doesn't mean that you're going to act, be able to access all of the support that you need. Like just because you have that um, diagnosis, for example, or have been identified as autistic, it doesn't change the challenges, which I think when you're saying to Lisha, like it feels like arguing, like you, what you're saying is you have to fight for what you need. Yeah. And, and that can be exhausting. Like yeah. you, know, you already have what, you know, two assignments and a midterm and an essay, like all, all of this stuff going on and then having to advocate your, for yourself so hard is it's exhausting. And I think that it inherently makes academia so inaccessible yeah. and it systemically excludes people. And that's really frustrating, you know? And then there's this this other aspect of when you do ask for help, like I know I was so often met with like, oh, but you you read so well for someone who's dyslexic or oh you're doing an you're doing an English degree? Like you're you're almost done an English degree? Cause that's the other thing is like I I didn't even get my dyslexia diagnosis until I was almost done my <laughs> English degree. Um and that's really common because you know, like so often the DSM is based on a very specific type of person and anyone who doesn't fit that profile has just such a major struggle to get a diagnosis and to, you know, in order to get the help, you need the diagnosis and, you know, it's, it's just this cycle. Um, yeah. So when, whenever I asked for help and I was met with this kind of like, oh, I had no idea that almost implies like, I think lesser of you now. And, or like, I, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't know. And it's kind of like, what changed? Like what, why? Like, okay. <laughs> like you didn't know because you didn't need to know. Um, and that's something that I'm really grateful for. I have had some amazing professors who I didn't even need to say why I needed an extension or, um, what my diagnosis was, they were just accepting and respected that that need, that Cal accommodation letter. And I know like some of us don't even have a Cal accommodation letter, as I was saying. So, and am I right, Delisha, that it, um, you know, he's been on our podcast, so we're a big fan of Andrew Murray's. And uh, I think that you already shared with me, and I was just, you know, really moved by your, um, really naming him as somebody who supported you. I think you told me that he was like the first person who told you about Cal. Yeah, I had no idea that the Center for Accessible Learning even existed. And I was just, as I said, struggling along, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like just keep swimming type vibe. Um, and yeah, and he just kind of said, hey, have you, he you heard of this? And so I immediately signed up and that was, that was pretty, I don't know how I would have made it through the rest of my degree without having those supports. And, and yeah, just Andrew Murray, his, his words echo, like, um, 
he has been extremely influential for me and the way that he makes his classroom so accessible. Um, I mean, he was letting me record lectures. So that was like a way that a lot of um, autistic people and people who are neurodiverse, they, uh, and I speak from lived experience here, um, it's really hard to focus on one sound um, so if I am sitting in a classroom and the person next to me is clicking their pen, I do not hear anything that the professor is saying. So I missed that entire piece. So recording lectures and like uh, Professor Murray allowing me to do that was huge. Like, so there are little things like that that I have learned. And I think that that is huge too. Like once you learn your disability identity, um, just like fully embracing it and like, you know, diving into that positive disability identity and then learning tips and tricks. Like, you know, I'm not saying that that's how we should have to exist in the world. Like it would be so nice if the world was just accessible, but the reality is that it's not, it's not especially in academia. So even things like the lights and Claire Hugh are so <laughs> bright. They're pretty <laughs> awful. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> Those fluorescent lights. Yeah. yeah. They're so bright. And so I'd leave a class every time with a major headache, um, like so bad. And even as um, like maybe my concussion symptoms got better, um, I was a lot more sensitive. And as I, I mentioned, like I couldn't mask things anymore. So I was doing things like baseball cap, but then professors don't really want you to be wearing a baseball cap. So like rose tinted glasses, like all of these things, all these tips that I was trying to survive basically so delicia once you were it sounds like um you know the first two years of your undergrad in an english program um were these years of not only so much challenge but a lot of change for you personally as you came to understand um as you shared your um identity as somebody who is uh, neurodiverse, disabled. So I know that you also um, eventually did learn, um, like get a diagnosis of ADHD. And I'm just wondering if you want to share a little more about if anything changed for you once, like, or what started to change for you once you uh, we're sort of, I guess, like partway through your degree and had more information, you know, did anything change? So much changed. And I think, I think this is why I always shake my head at people who are like, well, what's a diagnosis going to do? And one of the biggest things that it did for me was validate my experience. Um, so I was able to be kinder to myself. And that's, I think the biggest change. And the one I'm going to focus on here is I no longer was like, oh, I can't get this assignment done. I can't get this assignment. And, you know, I'm stressing about it every single day. Um, I was like, okay, my executive functioning is a little different. And I'm I'm not going to follow this professor's outline where it's like, you have to start this, you know, three weeks in advance. It's not something you can do the night before. Actually, this person can. <laughs> I can do it the night before. And, and I've been I doing it the thrive. night before my whole life. Yep. <laughs> and I thrive when I do it the night before, but I would do it with such guilt. Like I would feel so bad. And I and that added stress up until I was able to do the assignment. So unneeded, right? But I mean, it was there and it was strong. That's so interesting, Delisha, because you're saying that it was 
how you needed to work, right? That's how you were working. But that when you say you felt guilty about it, like I find this is like a shot to my heart. Like I just feel like you um, you probably felt like some sense of shame about working that way. Like that that wasn't like a model student, right? To do it the night before. Like that's not what a good student does. Absolutely. I, and then, and then it kind of brought up feelings of like, I'll never be a good student. I'll never be able to get into grad school because I can't even finish my undergraduate work. I can't even finish this assignment. So there was a little bit of spiraling there. Because you're not fitting the model of what, um, and it's a dangerous model, right? That there's only one way to be a student and there's only one way to be a successful student. Right. And it's all based on that neurotypical student. And neurodiverse students need to see themselves represented too. So when a professor says, you can't do this the night before, like even that simple statement adds stress to me when I read a syllabus. Uh, So like, yeah, I just, I try now, I make that kind of, and this doesn't work for everyone. This is just my experience. I I make a false sense of urgency to get myself started to work. So I use like apps like a uh, forest app. So you can kind of time yourself and then it kind of gives you that urgency. Like, okay, you only have 30 minutes and you, you have to get whatever done. Right. Um, or I'll even give myself false deadlines. Like I'll, I'll adjust everything so that the deadlines are slightly different. And those are ways that I have learned, you know, now, but I definitely wasn't even able to do that at first. And then that is another thing is like, what are you able to do? Like my hundred percent sometimes is another person's potentially their 40%. And so if I'm giving my hundred percent, which is my, and it's all I have is that 40%. I think being kind to myself is acknowledging that I have just given a hundred percent. It maybe is 40% to someone else, but it's my 100. Um, and just, yeah, just acknowledging that that's what it's going to be today and not, not falling into that trap of shame and judgment that you're not fitting the mold. And is that, Delisha, I was reading recently about the spoon theory. Yes, I love spoon theory. Is that like sort of, it sounds- Yeah, that's, like, kind, of, that's kind of where I was, you, yeah. Can you maybe um, say a little bit about that, about the spoons theory? Yeah, for sure. So like it, it's very predominant in uh, disability communities where like, you know, we all have a certain amount of spoons and as the day goes, maybe like use up a certain amount of spoons, maybe a certain task takes more spoons than- other tasks, and maybe you start the day off with only a single spoon. Something I used to say to my friends is like, okay, today my spoon has gone into the blender, (laughs) it's been blended up, and then it's come out, and then someone bent my spoon, but it's still there. I still have a spoon. (laughs) So those are like in disability communities, I do find like we have fun with it. And then, um, I think that this goes, this ties into conversations around like disabled and disability are not bad words. Yeah. Yeah. You know? like We don't need to be afraid of them. And that I think, and I, I was reading a post actually, which 
I know that you have had so much to do with the Society for Students with Disabilities. And I was reading one of their posts recently, which we shared on Bounce Instagram, which was just that, just uh, disabled is not a bad word. Disability is not a bad word. And I thought, yes, like this is what we need to be sharing, right? This is this is the statement that needs to to be out there to be able to, you know, I think that's where it starts. And when you talked about yourself coming into and understanding your own identity as a neurodiverse disabled person, and then as you've, as you said, Delisha, having um, the diagnosis, having that information has allowed you to not only understand yourself, but also um, be, as you said, like compassionate with yourself and like kinder to yourself, because it sounds to me like, I'm just guessing, but if you were masking all that time and going through, you know, your first couple of years of university, like, I just can't imagine just how painful it must've been to be pushing yourself like that. Um, and I'm guessing that you must've been pretty hard on yourself. Yes. <laughs> and I feel like that's an understatement. Yeah. Um, and it, but yes, that's that's very accurate. And I think that that level of burnout, like yeah, when we, when we speak of like disabled and neurodiverse burnout, it is very different than the burnout that a neurotypical person right. might experience. Um, because there's just so many layers to that burnout. Um, there's sensory and auditory processing disorders. There's, you know, like there's the like often like chronic illnesses that go, yeah. go along with things. Like there's just so much to it. Um, and so, some days like I, I just couldn't even get out of bed. And yeah. then, and then you have, you know, why can't I, why can't I get out of bed today? Like, I don't, am I depressed, but depression doesn't quite fit for me. Like mm -hmm. I, I, you know, like there's just all these things, like what, what is happening? And so having those, and this goes back, like having that diagnosis was really key for me and something beautiful about the disabled communities that I have been part of that I know the SSD um, facilitates is you don't need a diagnosis by a medical professional to be part of the community. You can self-diagnose and that is perfectly valid. Yeah, yeah. And as you've said, Delisha, that once you had that, it didn't mean that things necessarily like entirely go. It wasn't just easy street because <laughs> you are still, you know, having to advocate for yourself, which as you've said, has been, you know, that is ongoing and that is tough. And yes, well, there are many who at, at universities and in the educational system who are supportive there are many who simply um, don't have enough awareness or understanding uh, and uh, continue to perpetuate um, ableist and uh, really, you know, um, and, and are just not ableist ideas and are not, are not accommodating, right? And make it that, you know, even as you've said, you know, a prof who, who might quite, um, without any kind of malintent necessarily say, well, uh, oh, I had no idea because you're such a good writer, like you're in English or, you know, 
not knowing that like you and and you've said well that made me feel like suddenly something changed for them right that's about me right but i think it also suggests that there's a way in which they just simply have no idea about like how hard you have worked and how much you have masked right in order to be able to present those um you know academically um successful assignments right well there's an, an inherent like othering that happened yeah. in that in that exchange right where it's like oh I had no idea or um you know just those little simple things and yeah. that that othering that's that's that moment where you're like oh like okay like you know like that's like fun. do you see me differently now or something yeah, yeah yeah and and it's hard like even that internalized ableism like yeah. cause you're just you're just getting it all the time yeah and you don't always expect it for example from a professor you love even it, yeah. it can happen and like this the syllabus you know we you just mentioned how like maybe you know a professor is trying but they're not quite quite there on that accessibility and understanding but but there's also like you know systemically yeah academia is inaccessible and I acknowledge like professors do have to work within a certain you know expectation and all that and but even having something on the syllabus like a trip to the museum uh would send me into a panic because that is just like the most overwhelming space ever and then of course they expect you to be able to write an assignment that night or a reflection that night and like that expectation that's a lot because I I go to a movie or um you know even the grocery store sometimes and then I need to recover I'm not able to write an assignment that same night um you know and they have it due by midnight or something and just little things little things like that are are really ableist. I would say, obviously, the majority of professors, they just don't think about because they don't have to think about those things. Right. And, and that's that, that like education. That's the, that's my plea. Like, please (laughs) educate yourself. And like, you know, it's really time, like, like, it's time to like, learn about this and acknowledge and respect neurodiverse people and and their needs. And don't just put it as a statement. Like I, I think, you know, I'll, I'll just share this even about myself uh, that, you know, a number of years ago, we were encouraged to, um, and it was you know, obviously a very good thing to put on our syllabus, um, any syllabus uh, that, you know, we, you know, acknowledge, we support, um, you know, diverse learners and diverse learning styles. So, you know, I don't have the exact statement, but something similar to that. And we will put it on there. And I think, you know, I put it on there. And of course I would accommodate, you know, any student who needed accommodations, like without question. But I think, did I make structural changes to my class at that time? to make them more accessible? I did not, right? So it's this idea that when you put this statement on, right? Um, you think that you are creating accessible classrooms, but I guess what I would say is whatever you think you're doing is probably not enough, 
and you probably aren't doing all the things you need to be doing because I'm sharing this as a professor, as somebody who's like, oh, like, you know, as I say, a number of years ago, putting this on my syllabus, like, yes, this is the, this is, this is, I, I um, am trying to make my classrooms more accessible. I support diverse learners. I, you know, but actually what, what are, like, what am I doing in my classrooms to make them more accessible? And so these are things that, um, you're absolutely right. Like we need to be thinking about, but not just thinking about, we need to be making actual changes. Yeah. And, and I think that's where it comes into conversation where you have to be consulting those authentic voices. Yes. People with lived experience. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, relating back to my own research, that's why I want, I want to challenge the dominant discourses in yeah. education by highlighting that importance of representation and inclusion of disabled peoples as people, as learners of research about themselves and their communities, because that's not something that we have right now. It's very much lacking. And so this is why I'm so grateful for this conversation today, Delisha, uh, because really it's, um, it, the education system needs a re-education. And, um, you know, it's a start, at least, I think, to be able to um, share your lived experience as a student in these classrooms. Um, and, you know, for me as an educator, um, it does make me reflect um, just so deeply on the things that I'm doing, because I think that there's this way in which you can think your doing enough like as I've said right you think you think you know <laughs> like you understand what ableism is you think that you're creating accessible classrooms but I'm here to say like you absolutely are not right? like I just think I'm not yeah. and um, I'm not trying to make this about my own classroom but it's just that like when you said like those lights in Clarehue it's like, I don't have to consider the lights in Clarehue because they don't bother me, right? I mean, they're, they're bad lights, but, but it's, if, I guess what I'm trying to say is like teaching with love is thinking about every student in your class, right? It's about not just this kind of amorphous student, do you know what I mean? It's every student's lived experience. It's actually taking the time to think about them, to listen to what your students are saying to you, like what are they saying about their needs? It's to, um, it's it's to think about them, right? It's it's what it means, I think, to 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 think about visibility differently, right? It's actually seeing your students. Yeah, I think it's so important. What you, what you said there though, things that like I have to consider that are super significant to me yeah. may not ever occur to my professor or the student sitting next to me. So the clicking of that pen that I referenced that would absolutely distract me and make me kind of miss the lecture yeah. or, or the lights or whatever it may be. Like, you know, one time I had a, a timer on my 
uh, exam while I was taking it at home. So I'm taking it at home in the comfort of my own home. But I see this timer and I, I wasn't the only one who experienced this either. I have another friend who's ADHD and seeing that timer yeah. absolutely froze us. Yeah, And yeah. we could not complete the assignment because mm-hmm. of it. We just stared at the timer. Um, and, and that's like, I'm not saying that we all experience the same things. Right. No, but you're not alone in what you're experiencing. And I think also asking for, I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it would take another episode to talk about all of the ways in which there are challenges around accommodations. Right. But what you're saying about, well, for me, like it was so important that, um, Andrew Murray said I could record the classes and you think there have been debates, if you can believe it about should students be able to record classes and things like that, right? Like we know this, right? Because this is a debate post-COVID around um, like recording lectures, like all of this kind of thing, right? And it's like, why would you not want to accommodate a student who needs to have that lecture recorded? Right. Like, why is that a difficulty to say, of course you can record it? (laughs) Like, why is that a problem? Yes, no, I'm 100% there. And, and it goes beyond just like, you know, being distracted. Like it, it can also be like some students, their learning disability means that they won't remember, you yeah. know, by the time that they leave the classroom. And I have experienced that with my brain injury. Like I, I could have a conversation with you and I wouldn't remember it tomorrow yeah. or even in an hour, um, you know, but I still wanted to attend school. I still knew that I wanted to get an education and, that I knew I wanted to pursue it in the way of attending UVic. Um, so uh, recording lectures, you know, there's so many layers to why that could be important to a student. It's not yeah. just like this one way, you know, we all have our reasons and why an accommodation for me for this one thing, you know, it, it might be this, but it could it could be for someone else, it's something different. Yeah. And and that's also just learning your 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 own disability identity and learning what works for you and what doesn't and that takes a lot of time and unfortunately when you come to uvic like there's no or any university yeah. or um educational setting there isn't necessarily like a handbook that you're like yeah here you go like these are the things that could help you yeah um and so you don't even know what to ask for, even when you have the diagnosis. And so does the Society for Students with Disabilities do some of that support, uh, Delisha, to help students figure out um, what to ask for? Yeah, they can absolutely do that. And they have an amazingly active Discord community and uh, just community in general. And you know, they're always sharing different, different things. And I myself actually realized I was autistic. And then I was like, mm, may- maybe I'm not, maybe, maybe I, it's just ADHD or it's, it's just this. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I shouldn't say just, but maybe it is ADHD. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's something else. Um, but the more that I talked to the members of the community, I was like, I, I fully identify with what you're saying and I experienced that. And I think that's the other like powerful thing of having these conversations is you can see yourself represented 
you know, you're like, okay, I, I experienced that too. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and then, and then you learn a little bit about yourself. And so I highly recommend just having conversations with people, asking questions and not being afraid. I think that's a huge thing. People are kind of like, they find out that I'm autistic and it's like, oh, okay. And they don't ask a question. I'm like, just ask it, you know, just, just ask me the question. And I'm so happy to have these conversations uh, because I'm probably not the only one in the classroom and I'm probably not the only one struggling in the classroom. Well, you know that on on this podcast, we have um, conversations with students, uh, with faculty, so that, you know, folks can see themselves represented and not feel alone. I mean, that's one of the huge, you know, goals of this podcast is to help students, uh, but faculty too, and staff, you know, whoever's listening, feel less alone in their um, experiences and to feel that they are part of a a community that supports each other. And it sounds like the discord um, is, you know, a fantastic uh, way for students to engage. But what if students, uh, so students listening who are maybe not at UVic, first of all, what would you um, say to students who you know, are different universities about, or different post-secondary institutions about accessing support. And the second question is about, what would you say to any student who's just starting um, university? Maybe a student who either is disabled or is neurodiverse, or maybe doesn't know yet, right? Doesn't have a diagnosis. So I guess two questions, maybe they're kind of related. Yeah. Okay. So, so much there. My mind, my mind is whirling with all <laughs> these things. Um, for, first, I would say that there are actually people joining that SSD discord from like all over. So you don't so, have to be from UVic to use that. No, you. Okay. I have seen people join from all over, all over. Wonderful. Okay. So if you are listening, you can join the SSD and you know what, well, is there like, um, maybe we can put a link to that. Yeah. I'll, I'll share it with you. Okay. That's great. Um, yeah. So, so many people like from all over, um, people who haven't even started university yet are joining and asking questions. And I think that's really great. Um, people from other universities are also asking how they can start kind of society for students with disabilities at their own university. And I hope to see that other places too. So you mean it's not at every institution? No, there isn't. There isn't. It sounds like, I, I mean, I only have experience at UVic. Yeah. Um, but it does, it does sound like there's not mm. a society at every single university. Um, but that kind of makes sense, right? Like yeah. <laughs> the world is not the most accessible yeah. place. It's not the most accommodating to students who are neurodiverse and disabled and that does seem to be somewhere that is lacking universally yeah um and I I love what you're saying about like you know being represented on these on this podcast and just in in the world like because I've never seen myself accurately and like positively represented in the media or novels that I read or anything really like I it was actually TikTok that I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, there are there are autistic women who are like me. 
And like, that was kind of like, I'm ashamed that I'm saying TikTok, but like, right. I mean, if you find it somewhere, right. Like run with it. And I think that's a really tough question and there are so many components to it. So joining a community and asking those questions and, you know, that radical self-acceptance and self-love, I think is where I would end up. Like that can be really hard to embrace, but I think my, I think my advice would be just that embracing that radical self-love and radical like self-acceptance and I say radical because you know it's it's not it's not always um especially in academic communities not always easy to do that yeah it is radical it's it's radical because it's it's a shame it's a a shame that it's radical um it is yeah yeah and like you know we're always pushed to like you know, you finish one assignment, you don't get to take a, a rest, but I would encourage people to rest. Uh, I know for myself, I and any student that I work with, like tutoring, we factor in rest time after we yeah. complete an assignment. And that is so key. And it helps with burnout and all of these things that uh, neurodiverse and disabled people experience at just dis- disproportional levels. Um, yeah, so I would, I would do things like this. And, and that kind of means learning your own positive disability identity. So that radical self-acceptance and self-love can, can be hard, but that's, that's my advice. And it really does nourish a positive disability identity and, and know that your neurodiversity and disabilities are unique and they're like they're invitations to contribute to a predominantly neurotypical environment or world um in a innovative way and allow that to invigorate your intentions not only academically but across all areas of your life what you're saying here is so moving and so powerful because you're suggesting that radical self-love and acceptance is a is that's the the way that's the way of kind of um tapping into what's needed to navigate a world that let's face it is um not set up. It's not made for those who are disabled and who are um, neurodivergent. And as somebody said to me today, um, when I was sharing my own sort of struggle to support my son, who is uh, autistic, and I was sort of on, um, you know, a, a real tirade about to change these systems and um, have that happen instantly because I hate sending him into classrooms that perpetuate um, uh, stereotypes about those who are um, disabled or neurodivergent um, classrooms where he's not supported, where we have to fight for accommodations. Um, he, 
he's younger now, but you know, someday he'll be, you know, maybe in post-secondary, but I want for him to be able to, um, just not have to face these challenges every single second, basically of his life. And so, you know, this dear friend said to me, well, the difficulty is, is that this is the world that he lives in. And this is the world he has to learn to navigate, right? Because that's the world. That's the world. And so when you say, you know, it's so important to really think about radical self-love and self-acceptance and to, I, I won't phrase it as beautifully as you did, Delisha, but you said to allow the, like the positivity of your disabled identity to, oh, what was the word you used? You said to sort of like, um, kind of fuel, like nourish and like fuel your, um, yeah, so like your actions, right? Yeah, yeah. So just like invigorate your intentions. Yes, like I just love that so much. Like to think like, okay, so yes, of course, work to, you know, some invigorate intentions around like, you know, making changes and things like that and advocacy and all of that. But like also to be able to um have that kind of, I don't know what the word for it is, almost like groundedness or something, right? From which to move in this world that is so um, inaccessible in so many ways. Even just having that positive disability identity yeah. is a profound act of activism. It's, you know, it's a profound act of resistance, mm -hmm. you know, because they don't want that, you know, they don't want they, you know, they want you to feel like you need to be fixed, that you're not a whole person. All, all of these conversations that have been happening for, for decades. And so that radical self-love and that acceptance combats that, you know, but it also, it also is just nourishing because you don't always have to be out there on the front line. So just, just embracing your own and positive disability identity, you know, that's activism too. And I think that while, while in school, especially, you know, we're navigating so much, we don't have to be doing everything. And, and, and that, that brings in, you know, other, other conversations that I'm sure you've already had. Um, but yeah, so like just knowing that your, your, your unique neurodiversity identity and disability like your positive disability identity is an invitation to contribute to this predominantly neurotypical world um in that innovative way like because no one thinks like you and I think there's power in that and then allow that and that's what I mean by like allow that to like invigorate not only this academic world that we're part of but your whole life, like everything you do. There is a quote from Margaret Price, who's an associate professor uh, of English at the Ohio State University. Um, and she is genderqueer and a disabled person. And she says, 
Neurodiversity acts as a positive force in human evolution, enabling alternative and creative ways of thinking, knowing, and apprehending the world. And I think that that really encompasses beautifully like kind of what we're talking about here. I love this so much. I, I just want to share with you that um, I, I was in my son's classroom and they had to do something about, they had to draw something about their favorite body part or a body part that they were like thankful for or some aspect of themselves. Maybe it wasn't a body part. Sorry. It was like some aspect of themselves that they were proud of or were thankful for. And my son actually drew a picture of his brain. I love that. Oh my God. I love that so much. And he said that, um, you know, he shared with me many times. He's like, well, if, if I weren't autistic, I don't know that I would be this creative because <laughs> you know, he does art and all these things, piano and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and we talk about that a lot, actually, about like, I guess that's the, the positive, right? I, identity in that way. And, and we keep having those conversations. And I, I feel like, well, if I can help him to really step into and embrace and embody that um, identity in the, in those ways, then it's a kind of, um, I don't want to say like a balm, but it's like almost like a, I feel like it's like a protective layer or something for him. Like, yeah, yeah, to like navigate this world. And I think that you're sort of saying something like really similar about the radical love, right? So it's like, like we as his parents are trying to help him to love himself in that way and I I think it's so important when you say that that is it's radical it's an act of resistance and it's radical because to do that um in this world it's it is a radical act right yeah, absolutely. And I love it. I love that he identified that I don't like, you know, draws his brain. And then I don't, I don't know if I could be this creative if I wasn't autistic. And yeah. I'll share like in my own uh, diagnosis, it says that I have, and I'm using air quotes, some capacity for creativity. That's, that's like right in my, my own like diagnosis, my like, um, which is wild. I've been doing art since I was young. I absolutely love art. Art is like my creative outlet. It's a way that I self-regulate myself. Um, it's, you know, it is so many things to me. So to look at a med- medical documentation, yeah. medical document and see, you know, I have some capacity for creativity. It really just, you know, it speaks to that whole, like learn your own positive disability identity because you are going to have medical professionals you're going to have professors you're going to have so many people telling you how you should feel you know what your capacity and are, who you you are. Like, yeah who you are um all of these things they're going to just be imposing these expectations and then trying to fix you again I'm using air quotes yeah. um and and you don't need fixing you really don't and I think that's so important like I do not just have some capacity for creativity. My entire master's work is going to be artistic and arts-based research. 
Um, so just keep breaking all of people's, you know, imposed expectations, just smash them because that's annoying. <laughs> we don't need them. That's ab absolutely. And I can think of a few other words to add to annoying, but <laughs> I, I know I had to censor there. I was like, okay, I'm not going to, and I was going to add more when I said smash, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I just, um, Really, thank you so much for talking with me today, Delisha. I know that, I, you know, first of all, as I've said, it can't happen soon enough that you are out uh, changing this educational system with your uh, absolutely, you know, incredible research and, um, you know, advocacy. Thank you for all that you've already done at UVic. And we will post some links uh, on uh, our Instagram to uh, the SSD Discord. So thank you for all of the work that you've done with that. And mostly for just sharing your story today, which will be so supportive to, to our listeners, and um, especially your words about radical love. Thank you, Delisha, for being here. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on today and for facilitating a platform for these conversations. And I look forward to many more because I think that we have a lot we could keep talking about. Yes, follow-up needed. <laughs> follow-up needed. All Thank right. You. Thanks, Delisha. Bye. Bye. You can keep listening to episodes of Waving Not Drowning on Anchor FM, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. We'd love it if you would give us a like and a follow on Instagram at Uvic Bounce. Tune in next week for another great conversation. Until then, be well.